Hi, Jill Mont Sommelier. Hello, Emily Reese, classical music and jazz extraordinaire and musician. How's it going today? It's going good. I'm excited to talk about legends today. We've talked about some legends in the many wine times. in the wine realm and and in the classical music. Well, I should say we in both classical and jazz we talked about legends. We pretty much always talk about legends in some way, shape, or form. You know, whether it's Beethoven or yeah, but sometimes whatever. we shine light on like that Haitian dude we talked about. Yeah. Legend, but not really. A lot of people don't know who the heck that guy is. Yeah, legendary in that part of the world. And last time we talked about some beer that probably a lot of people hadn't heard of. Fair enough. We like to we like to showcase the little guys here on Scores and Pours. Hundred percent. And gals and theys. Yes. I know on the wine front, we've talked about like Lopezeria, legendary and huge Spanish estate. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Henri Gouge. Yep. Legendary Burgundy producer in Nuit Saint George. We've also talked about someone like Pierre Bonhomme and, and Terry Pouzelat at Claude de Toubouf, which is a very legendary, more natural wine producer. But this is this is someone that I think is a very my producer that I want to talk about today and winemaker and viticulturist is a fossil. <laughs> he's legendary, but he's very quiet. He's very humble, and a lot of folks even that know. Some German wines, well, may not have heard of this guy. Mm. So, yeah, Hans Joseph Becker, otherwise known as Hajo. I love that. To the German wine world and his importer. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt that people have heard of my legend, Miles Davis. I would hope that people have heard of Miles Davis. And, I mean, he had such a long and fruitful recording career, we're really only going to focus on the beginnings of Miles Davis today uh, so that, you know, that especially gives us plentiful excuses to bring him back in future episodes. But yeah, legend on the trumpet in the jazz world, in the music world, really, Miles Davis. Well, and I mean, how many times since we started to breach the world of, of jazz have we heard, when are you going to do Miles Davis? Why don't you talk about Miles Davis? When yeah. you talk, didn't you say that on your jazz radio days, you'd have people like at 6 a.m. like, well, why aren't you going to play Miles Davis at 6.03 a.m.? Yeah, well, and just like, yeah. <laughs> yes, I did have some Miles Davis phone calls in my radio career. And weren't you like, because it's 6 a.m., that's why? Well, it, <laughs> Well, I mean, there's plenty of 6 a.m. Miles Davis. It's just that person, it's a different story that gets complicated. But he called me because I was playing New Orleans second line jazz. said, why don't you play some real jazz like Miles Davis? And I was like, you can't say just like Miles Davis because Miles Davis had so many eras. Yeah. You can't, I was like, what, you want me to put on Live at the Plug Nickel at 6 a.m.? can't do that. And he's like, yeah, you can. And I'm like, you don't know. I I hung up on him, actually. 
Yes. It's one of the yes, few times, did. one of the few times in my radio career that I've hung up on someone. Yes, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Miss Emily Reese. You just can't t- call second line jazz, not jazz, and expect me to have any amount of respect for you as a human being. So <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yeah, that was a that was annoying. So that's the one one time in particular I remember getting a phone call about Miles Davis. And the the thing is there is a ton of really listenable um, kind of digestible Miles Davis, and then there's Miles Davis that isn't. That you know, some people might say it sounds like he doesn't even give a shit what he's doing, mm-hmm. but um, but he did, and for various reasons. And um, we'll we'll get to some of that just briefly, but we'll mostly focus on the early the early stuff. Now, when was the early stuff? Like, what years are we talking here for our listeners? Well, Miles was born in 26, 1926, Died in nineteen ninety one. Um, the earliest recording that we will hear today comes from 1949, 1950, and then we'll hear stuff into the early 60s. So about a decade of his, his beginnings of recording, um, particularly as a headliner, right, mm-hmm. as the person releasing the album. And uh, we'll get into the kind of the heart of what's called the first great quintet. Okay, so, and so the early his early 20s... Up through his early 40s-ish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. In my world, we're going to go to Germany. Like I said, we're going to go to the Rheingau. Yes. They don't roll their R's. The Rheingau. Yeah. <laughs> or the Rheingau. So we're east of the Mosul. Um, we're west of Frankfurt, for those of you who know German uh, geography. We're in the villages of Waluf and Eltville. And he, he makes mostly dry wines. I'll talk about why. And this guy, he's, why is he legendary? Because his story is really cool, just how he decided to make the style of wines he made. And in, for me, I think in German wines, the history, it's obviously really important to understand Burgundy, to know the history and why is it Pinot Noir, not Gamay and whatever, right? But I think German wine is so confusing. And we've talked on the show before about like, there's all these different ripeness levels slash sweetness levels, the labels of minefield, that all of that stuff speaks to a history. And so how he chose to do what he's doing was very counterculture at the time. And that's cool. Nowadays, everybody loves it even cooler. And he's kind of like, I don't give a shit what anybody <laughs> thinks because I like to drink my wines. And now they're hard to get your hands on, which is you know good for this guy because he's got to be just by looking at him in his 70s or yeah, huh. something early 80s. Yeah, you showed me a video of him and he looks like, first of all, like a genuinely kind human being, which of course looks can be deceiving, but he's very adorable with a giant mustache and you just, I would just love to sit and share a glass of wine with that guy, you know? You'd probably be eight deep before yeah. he was like, let's go do, you know, let's go walk the vineyards. Or let's do, like pearly white hair, just yeah. like Santa Claus white. Mm-hmm. Well, can we music our way into sure. some Riesling? Yeah, sure. Um, I mentioned that we'll hear recordings back to 1949-50, but that's not exactly where we're going to start. We will start with Miles Davis with the very first album that he was the headliner on. It was called Miles Davis and the New Sound. Well, Miles Davis, The New Sounds. And this was on the Prestige record label. And that's the record label that Miles was on uh, from about 1951 to 1961, mostly on the Prestige label. There were a couple of Blue Note recordings in there and one other record label, but mostly the Prestige era. We can think of this as Miles in Miles' time, okay? Um, So let's uh, listen to a little bit of this. Uh, We'll listen to a track called 
Conception, which was written by a British pianist, but uh, the players that Miles has on this recording, Sonny Rollins on the tenor saxophone, Walter Bishop Jr. on the piano, Tommy Potter on the bass, and the great Art Blakey on the drums. So let's listen to Miles Davis. This is from 1952 on the Prestige label. Miles Davis, The New Sounds. Why did you choose this specific one? Because there's so much miles. Yeah. Right? Like, and there's like, I if you were to ask me, I'd be like, oh, bitches brew. And there's like the blue no. Like there's yep. all this. So, and I love that you picked this because probably, you know, obviously tons of people have heard of it, but mm-hmm. it's not one of the maybe top three things everybody listens to when you Google Miles Davis. Not so, at all. And yeah. that's exactly why I picked it. Okay. Because, you know, people are going to play for you. Like you said, Bitches Brew, that's like such an easy go-to, like kind of blue. That is what people will play for you. Oh, yeah, thank you, kind of blue. I said blue note. That's what I meant, kind of blue. Yeah, yeah. thank you. And so, I mean, that's that's very Miles Davis, but so is this. This is the early years. This is like what he sounded like when he started on the scene, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's what I love about this. And um, also I want to, I forgot to mention, because you do hear two saxophones in there. So it's Sonny Rollins on tenor, but it's also Jackie McLean on alto sax on that recording. But so I wanted to mention that. But the other reason I choose this is, you know, it's from a time kind of when Miles was like working out the whole thing between playing trumpet fast with a lot of notes and then moving into this era of him where he used a lot of space mm-hmm. in his solos and really just kind of played Worked in a more phrasing kind of yeah a more intimate manner rather than not that you know really fast lines can't be intimate but you know you can hear him playing with rapidity here that you tend to not hear as much of in later recordings can we crank it on again yeah Definitely, Miles Davis didn't seem like a timid trumpet player. But is it sound quiet because of the recording, or or is he a little bit hold, is it holding back a little bit? He just wasn't playing in your face. Yeah, you know, blasting all of his air through the trumpet at once. So okay. it, he is playing almost kind of reserved, but but yeah, not not like as aggressively as someone like Dizzy Gillespie or maybe as projecting as like a Clifford Brown or somebody else of those the same similar era. Was that classic 
for Miles? Like, was, was, because it seems to me that I remember some blasting. I remember some sound blasting. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, he, he did a little bit of everything. And especially, you know, when you hear him play with a mute in, the Harmon mute, that kind of sounds like mm-hmm. it's blasting just because in order to get the sound that that mute uh, requires you have to push a lot of air through the horn so it can sound really kind of like biting and loud. You know, I mean, he he played in all kinds of ways, but in the early years, his idol was Charlie Parker, who was, you know, a bop alto saxophonist and played a thousand notes a second. And so Miles like wanted to play like that too and could and did. Okay. Um, but then I wouldn't say turned his back on that style because he he just adapted it, I would say. He, okay. It evolved into other ways of him playing, but then he also added a lot of space in his in his improvisation okay. uh, the older he got. I want to drink this wine, though. We'll yeah, get back well, to Miles. No, it's a yeah. compli- he's a complicated fella. Well, and this is complicated, too, a complicated topic, talking about German Rieslings, because some people will hear German Riesling and be like, oh, so you guys are going to have some sweet wine today. Mm. Or Riesling sweet or Rieslings fruity. All those things can be correct, but they're not always. And German wine is confusing. And to give a little bit of backstory, um, let's sip this wine right now first. Good. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. This is a 2019 liter bottle that Hajo makes. I'm just going to call him Hajo because, like, he's my homie. And remind me again what his full name is. Han- Hans Joseph. Hans Joseph. Hans, Hans Josef Becker. Right. And he makes all kinds of wines from all kinds of single sites that are within these two villages of Valuf and Eltefil, right? But there's so many of his wines that I thought it would be fun to just showcase. This is his liter bottle of Valufer Trocken, which that means that the juice that doesn't make it into his quote-unquote higher quality wines or wines that he wants to showcase a single site, this is a good just picture of what the entire village is capable of, and it's a liter, and it's dry. Yeah, it's a very, like, light straw color. Light hay. Yeah, I definitely get a a little bit of color for sure. It's not Mm -hmm. like one of those white wines that looks like it almost doesn't have color. You're right. It definitely has a little bit of a straw hue. I like that it does smell gassy. It smells like petrol. Yes. Yes, it does. In a way that sometimes, you know, Riesling people can say it smells like slaty and limey and really like high pitched. It This has that, but it does smell like the Rheingau, like it's going to be a little bit, just a little bit fuller than a typical lithe Riesling, you know? Okay. Whoa. A lot of acid. A lot of acid delineated, but there's still wow. some girth in the mid palate. There's still a little, little touch of roundness. Wow. Roundness is the wrong word. This is unlike any Riesling I've ever had. And I I love his Pratikat wines, his wines that have a little bit more distinction in one way or another. And I want to talk about those, but first I want to get to why this is a cool wine in and of itself. Our wine to Hajo Becker, his start in in the winemaking and learning happened in like the 50s and 60s, right? So this guy's guy's not young. (laughs) And in the 70s, when he took over, the early 70s, when he took over his family's Wine, winery and estate, basically. The style of the times was for sweeter wines, both off dry and all the way to full on sweet. And this was for all over Southern Germany. In 1971, there was also a reclassification of all kinds of vineyards. So they basically took, let's say in a swath of land, you had a hundred vineyards. The German classification system turned that into like seven vineyards. And so people wow. that had really great vineyards were like, well, wait a minute, what about 
my vineyard, this is special. It can command a lot of money. And Germany in the 70s was all about, you know, trying to say, listen, that place can't be better than that place, can't be better than that place, right? Yeah. So there was a lot of political things, geopolitical things that were happening that were to the wine world and to the sommelier world now more important than what was happening with Hajo. He was tasting, learning about different styles, and he realized in the 60s that he loved dry wines, mm. that dry wines were like maybe not the future of German wines, but he thought it tasted like they were just transparent, they were transcendent, that they really did display Riesling at its most pure. And everyone else was like, you're freaking nuts. And he's like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to make dry wine. <laughs> now, fast forward to the mid-2000s when I started in wine, or early 2000s, I should say. Germany didn't, pardon me, but fucking know what to do with itself. You had all these sweet levels of Riesling. Then you could write Trocken, and then you'd have ripe, meaning like body, level of Riesling, but they would be dry. So that was confusing. And then you had people saying, oh, wait, 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 wait. We are a group and we are going to start the Grossschlager and the Erstschlager movement, meaning like calling out sites, trying to be like, oh, Burgundy has a Grand Cru and a Premier Cru. Mm. We want Grossschlager and we want Erstschlager, like Grand Cru, Premier Cru. Okay, well, then everybody's like, well, okay, now we'll try to learn those even though there's already a history of like these sites are better than those sites. Well, then someone's like, well, well, well hold on, hold on. What if we have something called Grossesgewax? And that means everyone knows that that means it's dry okay. from a certain site. So you could in theory have a Grossesgewax that's from a Grossschlager that's dry, but you could also have a Grossschlager that is, say, an Auschleise level sweetness, ripeness level. Okay. It's fucking really confusing, right? For people that <laughs> yeah. even, even professionals were like, what do you get? You're making this more confusing for people. All the while, Hajo, just making his dry wines. Just making <laughs> his dry wines. <laughs> and people are starting to get, now that Grossiskavox, you know, they're getting, they're selling for more money. They're more in the 11 to 14% alcohol category, as are most dry wines. Hydro's just been doing that wow. forever. So people start to be like, who's this guy? And what's he doing? And yes, he makes the cabinet Spätlese and Auschlese level ripeness slash sweetness levels. But he also makes all of those that are trucking, so they're dry. Mm -hmm. And then he makes, so he, anyway, needless to say, this guy's been on the dry wine train for a long time. 80% of his production is dry. And now that his wines are quite popular, his importer, you can look on his website and he's like, yeah, so, you know, what do you think? Hans Joseph, like your wines are super, all the people are loving them now. Like, he's like, it's great. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, uh, so I think that that's cool. I think that it's great that this guy's just been chugging right along, doing what he thinks will exude the most terroir driven slash drinkable and thought provoking wine of his area. And he's just been doing that for, you know, 40 plus years. I think it's just admirable, you know? It's incredible. So when you say, you know, 80% of his production is dry, so that means 20% not, does that mean that 20% gets back sweetened to make it not dry or it's picked later so it's riper or how do you make it sweeter? Great question. So in Germany, it is permitted to add Sus Reserve, which means you've reserved grape juice and you back sweeten to get to the sweetness level that you want. Oh, with grape juice, but not Correct. with actual sugar? Not with actual sugar, with grape juice. However, 
in Hans Joseph's case, any wines that have sweetness are natural sweetness. So it's you've picked at a riper level and you have vinified that wine until you want to stop that fermentation. Sometimes it happens naturally because of the because the sugars win the battle, right? The yeast can't compete and he's only using native yeast. I don't know for sure. Some people will, when it gets to the sweetness level that they want it, they'll shove it in a fridge and then the yeast shut down. And he may do that too. That I'm not sure. My guess is that the sugars, because he's doing... I don't want to get too far into it because well, it'll be like blowing through miles in like 10 minutes and we don't <laughs> want to blow through Hajo that quick. But he's got certain fermentation techniques and ways that he makes wine that are not only conducive to showcasing terroir of the Rheingau, but also very singular because his wines in the Rheingau, when we taste this after our next miles segment, I'd like to talk about why his wines are so Rheingau and why they're very quintessentially Becker. Okay. So, that, that sounds great. Well, let's find us listen to some quintessential Miles Davis. Please. So we'll listen to a few more recordings from the prestige years, just so you can kind of get a sense for what what his sound was during and, this era. And when you say prestige, you mean prestige record label, right? Prestige okay. record label. Mm-hmm. So fifty one to sixty one, and you can see you you'll be able to hear some of the things that he was experimenting with. One of the things that Miles liked right off the bat from early on in his performance career was to have bigger ensembles, not a big band with 18 to 24 musicians, not not that big, but maybe eight or nine or 10 or 11 musicians. And to kind of write these really arranged pieces of jazz rather than just having an instrumentalist, piano, bass, drums. He wanted to have a bunch of instrumentalists with piano, bass, and drums that could play these intricately harmonized melodies and then solo over those melodies. So you can hear some of that experimentation from his early years. One of the most famous is from 1949. It's called Birth of the Cool. And that was a collaboration with a man that he went on to collaborate more with in the 50s named Gil Evans. Not to be confused with Bill Evans, this different person, Gil Evans. Um, So even though it wasn't on the prestige label, let's go ahead and listen to this Birth of the Cool album so you can hear that as as early as 1949, he was doing these kinds of you know, really radical at the time, arrangements for jazz ensembles. All right? Yeah. I would say most people that listen to jazz, that listen to jazz either peripherally or Mm -hmm. in the background or aren't going to know why this is revolutionary. So can you tell them why it's... Absolutely. First of all, even into the late 40s, big bands were still relatively popular. And, you know, a big band being an ensemble that usually had four or five trumpets, four or five trombones, five saxophones, a full rhythm section. This album just has nine people, and so this album arranges things very differently than what you would have expected to hear in a big band arrangement. So there's more independence. It's it's kind of like each of these tunes 
is a feature for Miles Davis, and you can hear him kind of be a part of the group and then split off from the group and play a little thing and then come back into the group. Let's, let's just listen to the, listen to Please, the beginning yeah. again, and you'll, okay. you'll hear the whole ensemble start to play, and then a, a you know, dozen seconds in or so, Miles has his own little solo to play. Can you kind of hear how they separate and come together mm-hmm. and separate and come together? And so for the time, that was somewhat of a new concept? Well, it was just a different kind. It was just a different spin on how to treat a piece of music for a larger ensemble. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, there's like harmonic players, but then there's 2D, which means Miles playing in unison with yep. an alto saxophone. That's called but a 2D? Then, 2D is when you play in unison with other instruments. Mm-hmm. Like the Facts of Life character, 2D? Well, T-U-T-T-I. Yeah. Nice. I mean, just pronounce the same <laughs> I way. I think 2D all... was spelled with Ds, right? Wasn't her name. It doesn't with matter. Yeah. It's 2D. <laughs> and so then the ensemble kind of backs off and they play in the background yeah. underneath his improvisation. this album in in 49 and 50 and it got shelved for several years it didn't come out till 57 okay and this was a sound though that miles really loved and would go on to collaborate with gil evans again on the very famous porgy and bess recording They did sketches of Spain. There's some really fantastic collaborations there with these, you know, again, the, the word that I can just think of is intricate, the, the way these uh, melodies are harmonized and arranged for these ensembles. And, you know, just very colorful and, uh, you know, beautiful music, but very different than, like, the bop that we heard just a moment ago where, you know, the tune Conception, I told you that we heard where Miles was playing really quick. Well, when you say that, the intricacy, that's what I love so much about these Rieslings is because Hans Joseph, you know, the the Rheingau is 
doesn't have this, I mean, it has some steep slopes, mm -hmm. but they're not as steep as a lot of the slopes in the Mosul, right? Okay. The Mosul and the Saar are known for these sites that you, they're backbreaking. You can hardly walk up them with, you know, hiking boots, let alone a basket of grapes to harvest, right? And mm -hmm. so the Rheingau has some steep slopes, but they're not as steep. And a lot of them are, you know, there's a little bit more flatland there, war, a little bit warmer. So the the wines are known for being a little bit more broad-shouldered. There's some slate soil as well. People hear Riesling and they think, oh, slate soil. It's kind of like, a, you know, two for one of they're made for each other. Okay. Um, and you get these like slate, many people would smell this wine and be like, slate soils. Well, yes, there's some slate in the Rheingau, but a lot of it is this like Luss, L-O-E-S-S, and loam, which those are, it's a combination of mostly sand and silt, but a little bit of clay. And so the wines have that, you know, the, from the Rheingau, they're like warmer, they're kind of a little bit more plump, a little bit more kind of compact, but not chiseled. So lazy is not the right word because there's always that verve and energy and really good Riesling. But Hans Joseph, whether his wines have a little sweetness or whether they are part of his more bone dry category, they have this very, well, let's just taste and try to put some words to it here. By the way, this is 11% alcohol. So you notice on the mid-palate that it seems like the wine almost doesn't exist. It's just like it comes in and out of being just like when we blink and our vision, you know, we, our, our vision is like momentarily stifled even though we never really think about it. Yeah. This seems like it just comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes and all the while it has this like kind of wants to be around center, but it is way lighter than that. And there's just a character to his wines that are like, if you tasted them, yeah, you know that they're not the Mosul and you know that they're not the Rheinhessen or any other region. They're the Rheingau, but they're really different than other Rheingau Rieslings. They sit a little bit lighter. And I wonder if that is due to the fact that they, they have the absence of sugar. You know, sugar makes a lot of things taste he heavier. You know, think of when you have coffee, and you have put sugar in your coffee, it adds a depth, it adds a richness. And so you wonder if these just seem a little bit more kind of lithe and filigree because they lack that sugar, even though they mm. have like perfect ripe fruit. I don't know. Do you have any opinions on that? Not really. I just, you know, the acid is so strong. Um, and I, I feel like we've definitely had wines that are way more acidic, but this, the, the way this is acid is like, it's kind of a, it's not as, I mean, it is a really bright acidity, but but there's also a really pleasant softness to it mm -hmm. that maybe is balanced out by the grape itself. I'm not really sure, but. He uses, as I mentioned before, so he's got 11 hectares. I didn't mention that. He's been organically farming his fruit long before it was cool, but he was, he's been certified for close to 20 years. But when the grapes come into the cellar, he only allows native yeast to ferment the grapes. And then he ages them for a, at least two years, if not longer, in what's called Dappelstuck, or 2,400 liter barrels. That's very characteristic of the Rhine. When you look at them online, I know those fuckers are more than 30 years old. Some of them, <laughs> I bet, are 80 to 100 years old, depending on just when he got what, right? And mm -hmm. most people say that, that at that point, oak doesn't influence, but it's a vessel. It always influences. So it's going to soften ever so slightly, it's going to let that wine breathe. Yeah. It may not take on an oaky, an oaky quality, but it's for sure going to let the wine actually breathe and 
lose the smallest amount of acidity and get the, the slightest amount of creaminess. I, I would be really curious if these go through a little bit of malolactic, you know, because yeah. I mean, they are fermenting very slow and he's not, I don't think he's using uh, temperature controlled cellars. At least it doesn't seem that way to me. And he bottles things whenever he tastes them and feels like they're ready. So last year at the wine shop I was working at, we got like a batch of 2014s and I was like, mm, what is this? Hmm. Oh, Hans Joseph decided to release his 2014 Volufer, whatever the name of the vineyard. So I can't remember, <laughs> Valkenberg or it was, I don't know, Berg Badstuk or something like that. Anyway, I can't remember without looking at my notes. But then this year it was like, oh, 2019, 2019's already, let's release the majority of them. So he just does things whenever they feel right. And I think in a world of wine where things are usually released to make barrel space and fermentation, you know, space for the, the following ferments that need to come in, you need to make money. You know, Thanksgiving wine sales are there for a reason, right? That's for <laughs> people to get right. It's just like Oktoberfest. Let's make room for the next <laughs> next uh, batch of stuff to, to produce. Yeah. He just seems like, I mean, obviously the sellers are big and he inherited them. Yeah. It's like, well, does this taste right? Maybe I need money, but it's probably a little bit of both, but I actually just think it tastes right. So let's yeah. just release this. I don't know. I, I love that. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of great, before you go on to more great miles. Yeah. This wine doesn't even seem fruity. I mean, yes, we're getting used to it. The thing, I mean, our studio is warm, so this wine is no longer cold. Now it's like just above the cellar temperature. Usually when things get warmer, or I should say lose their chill, the fruit can kind of come out more. This is getting more minerally as it sits here. Yeah. Like it's it's not fruity at all. I yeah. mean, I mean dry, maybe dried pears and dried stuff like stone fruits and stuff, but it's not like, a, you know, sometimes you get the peach and you get like all this f f kind of more flamboyant fruits with Riesling. This is like no can. Yeah. It's very mild in that way. We're making patron-only content dinner tonight. Mm -hmm. The producer is going to help us out with this, Mr. Sam Keenan. We're going to get him in the kitchen hopefully. And um, I'll be curious what he thinks of this Riesling with yeah. upcoming patron content. Stay tuned. We also would really love it if you could become a patron of Scores and Pours. It's really easy to do that. Just go to patreon.com slash scores and pours and, uh, you know, sign up there. There's tiers with various levels of merchandise like hoodies and t-shirts and corkscrews and stickers galore and uh, always patron-only content, which are recipes, delicious recipes, paired with a beverage, some sort of alcoholic beverage, and jazz and classical music. We could not do this without you, patrons. Uh, for those of you who can, this is not the time to donate to Scores and Pours. We totally understand, and this is our gift to you. Um, but for those of you that have an extra five or ten bucks to a month or more, we would really appreciate it. It uh, will help us keep going and keep doing what we love. Let's uh, go back to these prestige albums. I want to hear a little bit from 1955. It's called The Musings of Miles. And this is um, an interesting album because two of the players on it ended up uh, playing a lot with Miles Davis in what became known as the first great quintet. So that would be pianist Red Garland and drummer Philly Joe Jones on this quartet album called The Musings of Miles, 1955. Here we go.
So I'll go ahead and play you another track from this album yeah. um, where he's got his Harmon mute in. So this is a tune called Gal in Calico. <laughs> And this is something he used his entire career. He loved the sound of this mute. Gosh, I love that song so much. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the wine in some way, in the fact that like it's got that like kind of treble core but yeah. then there's like obviously a muffle of sound around it you know yeah it like reminds that, me of the bite but there's warmth yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what this wine kind of reminds me of totally cheers to that Philly Joe Jones and the drums and Red Garland piano and we'll hear uh, a little bit more from them in, in a bit but you know this is the era of Miles that as I mentioned listenable digestible it's not it's experimental but in its own ways it's not you know really pushing the boundaries of tonality or of traditional jazz harmony in ways that you know the modal jazz thing would or uh, the early what is modal jazz? Modal jazz, we'll talk about someday, which is jazz that used the Greek modes, usually Dorian, but just jazz. So like different scales, kind of? Different scales. Okay. Yep. Different okay. scales, different harmonies, different okay. melodies, that kind of stuff. Yeah, because that sounds like really digest. Like, that's a great word for it. Digest, like a really, yep. you know, and sounds nice. And to be nice. fair, a lot of modal jazz was, di- I mean, kind of blue like the best-selling jazz record of all time and you know people love it because it does it is listenable it's just different and Mm -hmm. um you know this was before all that but yeah we'll hear uh from uh, the remaining members to be added to the first great quintet uh when we get back to miles but um yeah do you have any questions about this wine because i feel like i could dig deep into like the history of weird German reclassification. I do want to <laughs> specify that that 1971 classification comment about we can't say that this place in Germany is better than that place in Germany. Keep in mind, we're like pre-Berlin Wall falling, and we had East and West Germany at the time, and mm-hmm. we had the you know the falling of you know post World War II. It was very much so. If you said that that place was better than that place, it could possibly go to a bad place. Yeah. So they were trying to kind of say everything is good. Yeah. You know, and and the kind of the bigger the generalization, the better. That's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. That said. Yeah. Do you have any? Because I could go just on and on, and I think I need some focus, Emily. <laughs> well, you said that you were going to talk about how his wine is like perfectly the Rheingau. So the Rheingau is known for this like slightly more plump style and he has he's managed to capture that through using the Doppelstuck 
you know, the bigger, older oak barrels, you know, having the vines planted to lus and loam soils, which is obviously something you can't just go up and change if you want, right? But so he's got, and he's using warmer ferments, which brings out a little bit more depth of fruit and avoids kind of this a steely quality, right? But then he does manage to be his own, like march into his own drum, you know, his wines aren't just that. They do have this mid-palate quality that I spoke of, this minerally quality that I spoke of. Like this, if I were to taste this, I wouldn't, at first I would guess it was Rheingau, but then I would maybe go somewhere else because of how how just direct the mid-palate, minerally the mid-palate is, you know? I, I don't know if, I wouldn't go to the SAR because it lacks a lot of the slate nuance I'm used to from that area, and it's not as cool as the SAR, but yeah, I would kind of be running all over of what is this. Yeah. And sometimes that's what's cool about when a producer takes all of his or her sites and says, or their sites, and dumps it all together and is like, this is my village wine. This is what everyday wine that I drink tastes like. Yeah. You know, which we all know he's drinking yep. all kinds of good stuff, including right. this. Yeah. But <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's delicious. I like it a lot. I mean, I I love Riesling in general. It's one of my favorite white wines. So having a delicious Riesling is always a really great, happy day for me. So yeah, no, this is no exception. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I love the dryness. I love the cutting acidity. Is uh, was really a nice surprise. So yeah, I think it's great. Do you want it colder? I do, yeah. I do too. Yep, I want it colder. I want to try it colder at least. I don't know if that would be then my favorite way to have it, but I certainly would like to try it colder. Well, we definitely will because we can't drink a liter during a recording session. That would be awful of us. <laughs> I mean, we've been maybe known to in the yeah. past, but we've. Um, but yes, I think yeah. we it, to save some f- for Mr. Sam Keenan and enjoy it with some patron-only content dinner to come yeah. uh, will be a great way to enjoy the rest of the wine. Yeah, no, it's going to be amazing. Along with this music. Let's listen to some more music. I bet Sam yeah. Keenan will love this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of these um, albums that I'm about to play stuff uh, from are quite famous. There are four albums that Miles recorded in one day with the first great quintet as part of his, I think uh, it was to fulfill contract obligations with Prestige. Uh, he had already left the label by the time a lot of them were released, but... Um, all of these were recorded in October of 1956, and the musicians had to rent the studio space by the minute or hour, probably, and so they literally just kind of recorded, they just like mostly did just one take on a lot of these tunes, so it's almost like recorded live shows from these cool. fellas. So um, I mentioned that Philly Joe Jones was the... Um, Drummer and Red Garland was the pianist in the first great quintet of Miles Davis. And adding to that would be uh, Paul Chambers on the bass and, of course, the great John Coltrane in the first great Miles Davis quintet. So let's listen to a little bit of them from one of these albums. I mentioned there were four. They were called Cookin' with the Miles Davis quintet, Relaxin' with the Miles Davis quintet, Workin' with the Miles Davis quintet, and Steamin'. With the Miles Davis quintet. So cooking, relaxing, working, steaming. They're all four absolutely great. And do they all have John Coltrane on them too? Uh, just the yeah, person? in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Imagine he, those egos. 
I mean, well, obviously they had to be like friends. They're obviously collaborating, but just imagine like, well, I mean, they both have such idea. They're just. Yeah, and that's why they ended up going their separate ways. It's not like they were like best homies there. At the end, yeah. they there was not they they weren't exactly friendly. Miles Davis was hard for anybody to like and to get along with. He was a very cynical kind of chip on his shoulder dude, and he had reasons to have a chip on his shoulder. Um, but he was difficult to get along with and really demanding. And uh, you know, there's a concert that got released just a couple years ago, but um, recorded in the 60s, a European tour that Miles Davis basically forced John Coltrane to come on. And you can kind of hear it in the playing. It's like Coltrane plays really aggressively and out there and just in his own world. And he kind of always did, but especially so on these recordings. And you can almost kind of hear the contention between them in there. But in these early years, it wasn't like that as much. So let's. this is uh, from Cookin' with the Miles Davis Quintet. This is a tune called Blues by Five. Obviously, if I if I knew the song by heart, I would hear it and know it's Miles, right? But I wondered, yep. like, if I hear, you know, you and I have talked about just tone and and pressure of air and all that stuff. Like, I think yeah. of like Ben Webster has a sound, John mm-hmm. Coltrane has a sound, you know, Dizzy Gillespie has a sound. Miles Davis definitely has a sound, but I feel like it's like if I didn't know the tune. So let's say we're just playing a scale, yeah, in a in a jazzy fashion, yeah. I, I feel like his is kind of tight, but with a with there's not a lot of excess air around, and it's like just relaxed enough to be jazz. You know, it's like on point. It's on mostly on rhythm. I don't know. Do you have a, any thoughts about like how his tone or? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of like kind of dead giveaways with Miles. You get really accustomed to when he cracks his notes, when he like misplays a note. Like when you hear him do yeah. a little crack, you okay. can, there's like a certain way that sounds with Miles, and his he's got a really big full tone, which is why I usually prefer to hear him without a mute, um, because I love his fat, round, warm trumpet sound. Um, and then there are certain ways he bends his notes. His vibrato is very telling. There are certain kind of ways he'll go up a scale and come down that are very miles. I mean, there's just little nuances here and there that that kind of give it away if he's not playing a mute and if he's not playing a tune that you know of his, okay. you know? Okay. Yeah, but for me, usually it's when I hear him miss notes, which everybody did. I mean, yeah. it's not like Miles was the only one. I'm not saying that it's he's you hear a trumpet player make a mistake. It's Miles. That's not what I mean at all. It's just the way... It sounded. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, you certainly can pick that up through years and years of listening, but I picked that up by transcribing his solos and playing them on my trumpet and trying to sound like that mm-hmm. and trying to make my mess ups, you know, sound like his mess ups and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
So let's hear something from Steeman. This is a track called Diane. Steeman with the Miles Davis Quintet, which was uh, the last one of the four to be released. It wasn't released till 61, even though it was recorded in 56. Vibrato. really quite quite indicative of what these you know this first decade-ish sounded like of Miles you know there was experimentation with the larger ensemble you know harmonized jazz and you know he's pushing boundaries in in certain ways here but more like in the style of trumpet playing in terms of you know if you put Miles Davis up next to a recording of Dizzy Gillespie from 1956 Dizzy's going to play about four times as many notes as Miles in yeah. this era of Miles. But one of the reasons I played those earlier recordings for you was to prove that he could play like that. Mm-hmm. He just didn't want to. That's not what trumpet jazz well, yeah, was less, to him. Less, and, less is more. Less is more. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get into solos like his solo on Bye Bye Blackbird, which is uh, one of the early recordings that was on um, the Columbia label after he left Prestige. And I mean, there's tons of space in there. It was just how he wanted to communicate trumpet jazz was so different than, you know, Fats Navarro, Red Norvo, uh, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, Clifford Brown, um, the other trumpeters that came from Bop that were his age. Well, and there's a parallel there between, I mean, J.B. Becker is not claiming to be natural wine, you know, even though he doesn't sulfur the shit out of his wines, he uses <laughs> sulfur and he, you know, but he's native ferments and I, th- I think he, most of his wines are unfiltered, but he might filter them lightly, whatever. He's not claiming to be natural. Von Boden, their importer, is not claiming for him to be natural, right? So I don't want to, th- this is unrelated, but it's related to like my drinking style. Like, yes, do I drink a lot of natural wine? I do. But like, to me, less is more, not necessarily less additives, obviously, that goes without saying, but like, I don't want something that's so fermenty and so estery and so 
out and left left field that I can't even tell that it's wine, you know, because yeah. sometimes that happens. A wine is, and, and people wouldn't say, oh, it's riddled with volatile acidity, it's faulty. I don't mean that either. But sometimes we're just getting wines that nowadays are made by people that really don't know what they're doing. People that are like, I want to go make natty wine. And, you know, that's awesome. Go do it. Have a blast. I can't wait to taste your stuff. But I, sometimes the wine version of a faster than Dizzy Gillespie is a little bit, you know, yeah. I'm not. So I, I do like the less is more yeah. approach where things are just tasteful yeah, and beautiful. Me too. I guess if I were to have any closing thoughts, because I feel like I talked about a tenth of an inch of what it takes to get to Jupiter and back when it comes to Miles Davis. Um, If you're unsure where to start and you like what you heard today, stick with that era for a while before you go off into, you know, the second great quintet or off into the fusion or... You know, yeah. let's not forget he did cover Cindy Lauper as well. So he he went down that road, and you know maybe start in the fifties, see what you think, get a little more experimental in the mid sixties, and go from there. That's my recommendation with some miles to scores and pours and to legends to legends and scores and pours. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find a wine list and a playlist and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll also find a link there to our merchandise, which includes hoodies and tees and other cool scores and pours things. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Scores and Pours. That is an excellent way to have a conversation with us or send us a message if you have show ideas or questions. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sir Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. Music.